freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello, culminators. This is, uh, we've already been talking, Nan Hayworth and I, we have so much to cover. Uh, there's so much that we have in common and so many things that we're both interested in. Um, I have recently gotten feedback that it wouldn't be terrible if I did a little bit more introduction, a little bit more of the introduction stuff. So I'm going to do a little bit more than I usually do. Uh, Dr. Nan Hayworth, appointed to serve as a member of the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition. She is a physician, an ophthalmologist. Mm -hmm. She is a former member of the House of Representatives, serving in the 19th District of New York. She is very outspoken on topics that you will find uh, that uh, if you follow me in any social media that I'm outspoken about as well. The difference is she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that. But actually, before we were officially starting, we were talking about Princeton. And really, if you're going to talk about, if you're going to talk about the uh, destruction or 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 uh, decline and fall of great institutions and of freedom of speech, Princeton is as good of a place as any. We both attended Princeton mm -hmm. uh, approximately at the same time. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think to to to, to look at us uh, th that in fact I'm uh, the older one. <laughs> well, that I was I would never say that in a million years, but then everyone has to know that I'm not nearly as old as I look. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had uh, Robert George on uh, on the podcast last year, and he was so pleased and so justifiably at the time proud with how Princeton had dealt with the Joshua Katz situation. And little did he know that they were slipping the shiv in. They it was what an absolute what an absolute travesty, and and Princeton has become known as uh, in surveys as the college in the United States, the, the major universities where people feel least comfortable speaking up in opposition to, you know, the, the prevalent orthodoxy. And do you have any idea from your observations how that happened? Why, why how did Princeton go so far so fast? Yeah, thought about it for a long time. Ron, and I, I, as it happens, uh, within my resume is the uh, privilege to have served on the Department of Politics Advisory Council uh, in 2015 and 2016. As far as I know, they haven't officially terminated me, but that's interesting. Uh, that you're in the so you're on the you majored in biology at Princeton. Biology, correct. Uh, but and, the Department uh, of Politics. Uh, in 2015, reestablished its advisory council. And interestingly enough, I was not the only Republican, not that we uh, were overtly announcing our party affiliation, uh, but I was the only 
which fascinates me because Princeton has produced a number of uh, political, of electeds, but I was the only one who uh, had served in elected office. Um, and I think <laughs> the coda to our, uh, to my experience with them came when uh, just before the 2016 election, when we were all uh, asked, you know, the friendly question went out, well, for whom are you voting for president? And I said, well, Donald Trump. Yeah. Silence. Oh, oh dear. Well, yes, you know, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, in the, the yeah. 80s, people don't realize that what we see happening, not people don't realize, but a lot of people don't realize that, especially younger people, that a lot of what we see happening with put a correctness on campus was presaged in our yes. time. Yes. Uh, it, was, it was right after freshman week for me, right when you were getting to know your cadaver. Yeah. Jerry Falwell, the Reverend Jerry Falwell came to speak at Princeton in Alexander Hall, the old Alexander Hall, not before they gutted it and turned it into the- The constipated know. orangutan of architecture as <laughs> one Princetonian wag uh, described it. Well, he, I, 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 at the time I wasn't, I was conservative, but I, you know, I, I was still feeling my way out. I said, let me listen to this controversial guy here. This is one of the great things about coming to Princeton is world famous people. You would hope. And I get in there and the room is filled with protesters. And they're not only protesting, so I couldn't get a seat, but they're not only protesting, they're, when he speaks, they stand up to block him and turn around, turn their backs to him to indicate that they're not going to listen. Right. Why don't you not listen back in your dorm room? <laughs> right? So I, I get it. It's it's a form of performative protest, sort of like that. Speaking of now, a perfect segue, the medical school uh, at Michigan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What the heck is? No, uh, it's, it's, it's unprofessional and unbecoming behavior. And I do think, I, you know, and I've talked about it, Ron, I think we have witnessed the apotheosis of the so-called goo-goos, the good government types. Uh, and I think what our- The woody, the woody woos. Well, precisely. Uh, but Princeton and of course, all of our comparable institutions, uh, but you know, Princeton has obviously occupied a pinnacle. Uh, of sorts. Uh, and I was, uh, I, I, as we discussed, I felt enormously blessed every day that I was on that campus. I you mentioned that you came out of the Midwest, not from a, not from a, a public high school. No, nope. yeah. public mm -hmm. high school. Yep. My Me parents. Too. I, I, I'll tell you, I, I went to public high, first my parents had never even went to college. Yeah. And yeah. I, and I went to a public high school and somehow I, and, and when my parents dropped me off, my father was crying. He, he couldn't believe, he couldn't believe the world in which, to which they had right. brought me. Right. And somehow they would find the $11,000, right. uh, you know, and it, as you said before, we, you know, uh, you felt so blessed. What an incredible country. My mother came to this country uh, as a, as a, as a young teenager and, uh, and my, my grand, my father was an orphan growing up in the Lower East Side, raised by his grandmother, an immigrant. And right. here I am. And to some extent, you're, you know, as you said before, it's, it was a great equalizer. Although I think 
you say, I mean, it's true. We got the same degrees as the Rockefellers and Montgomery's yeah. and the like. Absolutely, likes. yeah. Although I don't necessarily think, I, it took me a very, very long time to understand that the network, in other words, a place like Princeton reinforces existing networks. Yes. And then you sort of become a known person, but you're not going to be admitted to networks that you otherwise wouldn't. I mean, you could through the club system if you really, really wanted to. So where did you, where did you eat? Oh, I was in Cloister. In Cloister. So that was a cool, funky. I was in Cloister with Elena Kagan and Elliot Spitzer. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. What yeah. a... What an interesting were, crowd. Uh -huh. Yeah, you know, Elena was delightful. She was obviously highly intelligent. She was the editor of the Daily Princetonian. So I had a very dear friend who was in the Daily Princetonian smart set. So I, I got to uh, I got to rub elbows with them just a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but you know, like you, Ron, I'm the daughter of an immigrant. Uh, my parents were both absolutely brilliant. Um, and wonderful people, uh, both grew up poor. My dad in the United States, both World War II veterans. My mother was four years in the British Army. Wow. Yeah, she was, if you've ever seen Darkest Hour, she was one of those teletype operators. So she oh, was really? in London for the Blitz. Wow, right the cool. end of the war. I say cool now because it's cool to have done it. Well, yeah, doing it, it might have felt oh. might have felt so cool. <laughs> she was she was beautiful and and brave and vivacious and, uh, she, you know, she had a marvelous K through twelve education on scholarship, but couldn't afford to go to college, so that's where it ended for her. So she became a secretary. Funnily enough, so did my dad. <laughs> he became a clerk. Uh, you a know, clerk. Yeah. And then they both ended up, you know, my dad uh, ended up uh, becoming a CPA, getting his, you know, MBA and everything. Uh, and my mother was uh, smarter than her bosses. But, you know, here was I, thanks to them, thanks to them. Uh, here, here was I at the most prestigious university in the world, arguably. Uh, and, and I felt so very fortunate. But I... In retrospect, what I appreciate, you know, my, my then fiance, later husband, and I were the only ones in our set uh, to vote for Ronald Reagan in 1980, uh, a vote of which I remain proud today. Really uh, so I was, I was always conservative. I was so, I mean, I'm a libertarian, but, you know, libertarian, conservative, fiscal conservative, always a Republican. Uh, always cherish the Constitution. I look at my passports, the United States of America, and get choked up. Uh, so I'm one of those. Never changed and never regretted it. The only votes I've ever regretted, Ron, are the ones I made for some local Democrats who seemed nice enough, but were absolute jerks. So those are the, those are the only votes I regret. Uh, don't regret my Republican votes. But, but in any case, Princeton churns out. Uh, all of these graduates who have been imbued with a sense that they are special, right? The, the message you get from the moment you arrive on that campus and they teach you the alma mater, right? Is that you, and you probably had Freddie Fox too, right? Do it, right? We uh, were the first class that didn't have Freddie oh, Fox. And oh, we, you have to, I mean, the whole class of 85 saga is we were we by the time we graduated considered our we I couldn't care less about that but it, we were the hosed the we were considered the hose class and we were the class 
whose 25th, no, wait, is it 35th yeah. reunion was canceled by COVID. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, it was it was my 40th uh, that was, I mean, my 40th was last year, but uh, so far has Princeton descended uh, in my uh, esteem that I didn't give a buck for my 40th. And, they, and I was on the National Annual Giving Committee. I led uh, the uh, the proletarian uh, yeah. <laughs> majority yeah. of uh, annual giving for my 25th. That's how much I loved and respected and was grateful for everything that had come to me through Princeton because- it And that's how little annual giving matters to them. For all the, for all the propaganda, oh, yeah. everyone should give something. Ron, come right. on, just give- yeah. No. What matters is the is the hot shots. Oh, absolutely. You know, these are the people. And by the way, who becomes oh, yeah. a president of a university now? A fundraisers. Yeah. Fundraisers. Oh. You know, I'm not talking about oh. guys like Bill yeah. Bowen. No, absolutely. You know. No, don't get between a big donor and a, a university official, you know, because you will be run over. That is so true. And I valued more the hundred bucks that a teacher would send us than the 10,000 that would come from a, a venture capitalist. But but absolutely. I mean, Princeton runs on the money. And so I'm like, gee, you know, I bet if you surveyed the faculty, they probably wouldn't have a terribly high opinion of Carl Icahn, class of 70, I think it was. No, class of 58, I think maybe he was, uh, of Carl Icahn. And yet there's an Icahn Science building. It's like, you know, so what are we talking? I mean, I would certainly have an Icahn Science building, but, you know, makes the point. These people, so... So th this, and I, boy, I'll tell you one thought that's crystallized in my head a day or two ago, but, but, these, but Princeton churns out these graduates and tells them, go thou with the gifts that you have, because you're special, and now you've been through a very, very special place. Uh, go thou and change the world through policy, right? That's what they say. It's all about policy. And that inherently is based in government and is based in coercion. Uh, you know, the, the defining property of government is that it can kill you. If you don't listen. Right? right. I mean, that's the policing power of government. What's the difference between the government and your local grocery store? Well, you know, if your local grocery store doesn't uh, agree with you, uh, they they can't, uh, you know, they can't send the sheriff to your door necessarily. But if the sheriff comes to your door because the government wants you, the sheriff has a gun. You know, it's like right? right. So that's the defining property. They don't think of it that way. You know, they the government for Princeton alumni it, is meant to have it. students is meant to have the penumbra. A virtue, right? All good things come from government or through. And it's, a, and it's a matter of just doing the doing the math. Yep. It's it's, tech, it's what they call tech, technocracy, right? Yep. Let's just figure out. Let's do the then diagram. Absolutely. And we're going to figure out how to serve the nation. They were still saying Princeton, the nation's service, in, in those right. days. Um, and and you're entitled to make those decisions because you are the elite. You are the best. Of course. Absolutely. Not, right. Uh, and in this complex world, and that basically the complexity of life, you know, so-called black box uh, challenge, if you will, arose right around the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. And that's where swaths of life began to be uh, you know, beyond the, the spiritual or, you know, the, you know, the you know, existential issues, 
that's where swaths of life began to be less comprehensible to the average person. So, you know, now, of course, in this uh, very, uh, you know, tech, as you say, technologically advanced era, you need guides. You know, we need well-meaning, benign, benevolent authoritarian experts who are going to tell you what to do and how to live your life. COVID brought that. Right. And it doesn't matter whether you know who those experts are. If Twitter tells you that they have an expert, then the fact that it's a huge public company or a hugely valuable public company is all you need to know. You'll defer to that. So so you've... So now you've made the segue, the important one, and and of course we've re- you know we already mentioned the you know the walkout of these first year students, punks. They walked yeah. out, yeah, a, from a speaker who was known to be pro life, not because she was or he was going to speak she, about yeah. Um, yeah. abortion, but no. this was her personal view, right. and she's right. therefore a non person. Right. These are first year medical students. Yep. Okay. What happened? What happened to the medical profession? Oh well, yeah. The well, the the medical profession, uh, all the professions, really, Ron. I mean, <laughs> look at law. Uh, but it is frightening how the medical profession has been co-opted by uh, the big government, uh, left-leaning uh, authoritarians, and I think it's strongly because government uh, has over the course of the, you know, the past hundred years, and of course I was listening to you with Chris Rufo, you know, the march of Marxism through our institutions uh, started for serious in the Franklin Roosevelt administration. And, you know, I think he was a disastrous president, although, you know, war is a status paradise. So, you know, he managed to get us through the war, but, but, uh, but all of these, uh, you know, good government types can be co-opted by Marxists. And of course they were. So as soon as healthcare became a province of the federal government, you know, then it was destined to become ever more so. That's why the framers were so brilliant in severely limiting, delimiting uh, the remit of the federal government. You know, it wasn't it wasn't ever meant to manage any aspect of our day-to-day lives, right? And that includes healthcare, but healthcare too has become, you know, it's the black box. Maybe it's the ultimate black box in a lot of ways, right? And, yes. and I have, I, being a physician, you know, and having been a patient and having been the daughter of a, you know, of patients, uh, you know, I certainly appreciate how incredibly difficult it is uh, to get through, uh, you know, to optimize the use of our healthcare system unless you have, uh, you know, the right guides and the right insurance and the right, uh, you know, connections and things like that. Uh, but it is, you know, because of that, uh, government, uh, you know, that the, the the authoritarian types have completely taken over the healthcare profession, and because government has been co-opted by the so-called woke, you know, well, here they are. And, you know, there's, I I belong to an organization called Do No Harm, which was started by Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, who's a a courageous uh, former professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, uh, who is giving 
voice to those of us who can't speak, because you know what it's like, Ron, if you are in these institutional settings or even in the healthcare if I knew, industry. If, if I knew what it were like, I wouldn't be on my 14th job. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, it, look, look, big healthcare, uh, you know, is, is American medicine now. Big insurers, you know, big healthcare systems, big hospitals, big pharma, big providers, because of course that's the inevitable result of government managing things, things is that there's consolidation, there's and cartelization. There's, and corporate capture and the and revolving, capture. Door, revolving door regulation. I mean, the, exactly. you know, the, the um, whew, how to do that, uh, see, magic. People always ask me, how do, you know, how do they stay on? Yeah. And I'm always, saying, look, they stay on remarkably well. They do, yes. Especially if you don't have all that much hair to, you know. Well, I is Scott's Jewish. I raised two nice Jewish kids, so there you go. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I'm, I raised a few of them myself. <laughs> so here's the thing, though. I understand institutionally, like I expect the AMA, which I suppose is like the ABA. They're just the, oh yeah, they've completely been captured by you know yeah. the Democratic Party. They're but. Everyone who's gone to a like physicians themselves in their practices, yeah. We we grew up with this idea of doctors as being almost scientists, yeah. And in some cases, they are scientists, right. and and being you know these empiricists and mm -hmm. you know I I recently had my my checkup and I and my doctor happens to be one of my oldest friends and he has the kind of practice now where he doesn't have to he does things on his pace the way he likes it and we schmoozed for 45 minutes before he even got out the stethoscope okay? is, he in a con is he in a concierge practice <laughs> basically that's what it is now yeah that's basically Excellent. what it is now yeah and me meaning that I'm lucky if I get anything back on the insurance, but he's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. He's sitting there and we're, we're both sitting there the whole time with masks on. Ugh. This is a guy, he's a grad, I don't want to even, I know identifying information, but a graduate of a medical school that you would know very well. Mm. Um, oh, no, no, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a professor, he's a clinical professor there, but he graduated okay. from another New York law school. The point is, yeah. Why? There's no one else in there, okay? So he doesn't have partners to satisfy. Now, were you wearing were you wearing an N95 mask? No, I wasn't aware. He was wearing an N95, but I wasn't. Okay. And yeah. if he is, why am I? You know, we don't, right. this, you that, don't, you that's don't not going to be this podcast. <laughs> that's not going to be this podcast. But no, I get it. But yeah. Where where? And I, and I remember once I went to a dermatologist. He said, "Oh yeah, you definitely want to get to." You definitely want to listen. You definitely want to get the uh, you know the the vaccination. There's, no, there's really no reason why you wouldn't. Right. So what? Well, I had it. I had COVID. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, that would be the reason why I wouldn't. Right. No. I mean, and it's like, I know. What? What? So see, so in the legal profession, it's different because what institutionally the big mm -hmm. firms have become captured, and they do things like what Kirkland and Ellis did to. Yes, you, you know, uh, Paul Clement and the uh, yes, and, and his colleague, and you know, that's disgusting. But guess what? There are lots of places like, well, there's not, not lots of places like the Dillon Law Group where I practice, but there are lots of alternatives to lawyer for lawyers. Moreover, we have to win, 
And until the judiciary becomes woke, which we may be on our way to, but it might not be during my lifetime, we have to win and therefore we have to actually deal with the law and the arguments as they more or less right. are. But doctors- Yes, right. All they're dealing with is death and life. <laughs> Oh, yes. And somehow, and, somehow that seems to be, that should be a greater, you know, um, crucible of truth. It's, instead, yeah. No, you know what, Ron, I, I have, and I've had a lot of exposure in various ways, not only through practice, but also through obviously uh, observing how policy is made um, and being on a local hospital system board. Um, and my husband's an executive uh, who's an OBGYN and he runs an enormous medical practice. Um, I, I, medicine, one of the ways in which medicine has become more challenging, far more challenging for those practicing is that there's a phenomenon of social determinants of health which is a valid consideration. There are certainly social determinants of health. There's no question about it. But when you ask physicians, um, those and, and hospitals, those who are meant to provide basically care that has to fundamentally be, uh, be based in human biology. I mean, that's what we're dealing with, you know, life or death, human biology, right? Ultimately, you know, you're trying to manipulate human biology uh, so that someone who is ill recovers, uh, so that someone who is healthy uh, can remain so. Um, we just, we have drawn the circle of responsibility too far out uh, in healthcare, and it has become a distraction, and thus it is, um, I would submit to you, about uh, applying critical theory to the practice of medicine, while it is appropriate. Oh, yeah. To be and, aware and medical education. Yes, well, exactly, and it's very appropriate to be aware of um, American history, of sociology, of community phenomena, of the circumstances in a given person's life that can affect uh, both their health and the way in which they can uh, pursue uh, the measures that we may uh, ask them to you know, pursue with us so that they can maintain health or get better. Um, but, but when we try to do more than that, when we start, you know, which is what's happening now, of course, at major institutions, because now you've got the, you know, academic, you know, the academy and uh, institutional healthcare uh, combining, conspiring, if you will, uh, you know, if, if you walk in the door and the first thing they look at is, well, it's white female. Okay, you know, let me let me just qualify that person's demographics. You know, and, and you know, it's a, it's black male. Oh well, we have, you know, um, I think we're getting into very dangerous territory. And you know, from the the pure standpoint of you know practicing healthcare, you know, we're getting away from you know we're 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 taking precious resources away from attention to the problem at hand, which is you know did this person has glaucoma, <laughs> this person is about to have a heart attack or whatever it may be, and you it's know, dangerous and wrong. It certainly is. I mean, I mean, I mean, we're it's reached the point where you. You know, as I was sort of alluding to in the beginning, talking about Princeton, there's been yeah. such a decline in 
institutions, many of them centuries old, of course, some of them millennia old, including the medical profession, right? That were always and and, and the judiciary, yes, that were traditionally redoubts of a, of at least some more than much far more than a modicum. They were among the most trusted institutions oh, in they the were, world. They we hope they were meritocratic, right? Ron, and and unfortunately, I think what's happened, what I alluded earlier to a thought that had crystallized, it's really true. The education government complex, which is what I call most of uh, academia these days, the education government complex, which extends from, you know, pre-K right through graduate education in the United States, is basically at this point, pretty much a wholly owned subsidiary, not just of the, the government in so many ways, but of the Democrat Party. They are the extortion division of the Democrat Party. I mean, any school with public support, you know, how do they, how do they manage themselves? Well, they manage themselves to, uh, you know, to please the government. And, uh, you know, again, and, and, to, and to maximize profit. I mean, and, you know, the well, idea yeah. that you have these consolidations, I mean, it's funny because something occurred to me that had never occurred to me before when you mentioned the government education. Um, yeah, the education government complex. Complex. Yep. I, I don't know. I don't think you meant this, but it occurred to me, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, there have been all these consolidations of hospital systems. Yes. And there used to be that, well, if you want to go to Mount Sinai, Right. You go to the Upper East Side and, you know, you, you drop off your your wife and then you look for parking for three hours and she comes out. But it's worth it because she's gone to. When you come back, Sinai. she's had the baby. <laughs> they do. They did very good work there. Yeah. I now, was present though, there, so I know. Uh -huh. yeah. So now so now there's a Mount Sinai everywhere. It's like a McDonald's. Yeah. Because they bought all these. And I right. remember when yeah. when this happened in the legal profession 20, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. Firms that had reputations as being very good and then wanted to um, acquire local offices so they would have a presence here and a presence there. Yeah. Frequently would lower their standards considerably and, and dilute their brands. Yeah. But that's almost really a side point. But yeah. I, note, I note now that so many of these hospital systems are affiliated with some yeah. great university now. Yeah. And the hospital systems themselves, as you say, are virtually government entities. Yeah, basically. I mean, and then yeah. the relationship, the relationship between them and the insurers. Absolutely. Really make the care decisions. Yeah. It's absolutely. So, so as a libertarian, yeah, it's a circular relationship between, and it's all perpetually self-enriching, right? But among the institutions and government that makes the laws and pries the funds out of the taxpayers' pockets. So now let me ask you as a libertarian, I might expect you to, to tell me, well, you know, that's that's how the market works. We love that. You know, this is just how it is. But that's not it, but it's not the market. I know. I, I couldn't have lobbed you a slower. I couldn't have been a, it would have to be cane spree softball to be a slower, uh, you know. But And I have no athletic ability. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I duck when something's thrown at me, but but I didn't duck that one. Yeah. So you say, yeah, it's not the market, right? It, it's, it is, it is a manipulated 
uh, situation that is primarily uh, the result of government intervention, intervention with the coercive lethal force of government. So is there uh, any co-opted by people who are clever and human beings will always endeavor to maximize their own advantage? Right. So do you so now as someone who has been a legislator, been a physician? Yep. And now you're involved in the medical business. Well, I'm I, I, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> well, you're married to it, right? Your husband, I'm married to it. Yes. I'm married um, to it. How do you see if, from a policy point of view, right? Because we're still, what do, right. if, you want to, if you want to tell me, Rhonda, the answer is not policy anymore, then I want to know what it is. Well, uh, is it torches at night in the street? I don't think so. No, no, so, I know. Yeah. So from a policy point of view, how do you, I'm giving you, I'm making you president. I'm giving you a veto-proof majority. Wow. Uh, of actual Republicans, not... <laughs> not you know what we have seen from time to time right. what's the policy that you that you you know have sponsored on the floor of the house to make to fix this is to begin to fix it yeah you know i would obviously the the best answer is uh ever more you know, progressively, so to speak. I'm so glad, I'm so furious that they took that word from us, but progressively to walk us toward uh, private contracting in healthcare, you know, to, to uh, independent marketplaces, certainly independent of the federal government. But there's no question, Ron, that that would require a gradual transition. We've never had and I'm not going to blame uh, any of our Republican presidents, but we've never had, and I, you know, even President Reagan didn't do this. I would love to have a national chalk talk in which our president, say, took an hour of prime time on you know the cable and broadcast networks, and said, "Look, in layman's terms, you know, but here's our problem. You know, we've we've got uh, an awful lot." Um, that we're going to owe uh, our predators, and some of that's us, but a lot of it's you know other nations like China, for example. Uh, if if we don't China do something, China, if we don't do something about getting these costs under control, and we can do it, um, and we we understand that you know you're all depending on the government, Medicare, you know our seniors are depending on the government. Uh, to get their health care, you know, the folks who rely on Medicaid, you know, we get it. But what we're going to do is walk everybody down, you know, we're going to walk us, we're going to, we're going to make a bridge or if you're in a staircase, whatever it is, over the next 10 years, let's say, you know, this, we've got and, a long and this seems to be the biggest legislative challenge under our system. Yeah, where you've got people who are reelected every two years in the House, that it's almost seems almost impossible to do any kind of long term right planning because right. It, it, it's sort of like a a cartel that has you know I learned this from Ken Oye I don't know if you remember him from the Princeton Politics Department very popular no. lecturer he taught it yeah. taught, taught us about game theory but you know cartel every cartel is just waiting for the first cheating to begin because the more efficient the cartel the better the payoff for the first cheater. 
And that's also true with, you know, with, with a, a, an election cycle every two years is that the more, the more long-term your policy, Mm-hmm. the easier it is for someone to say, oh, this is a disaster. And you're saying to everyone, no, this is going to be a disaster. It's going to be really hard. But after the first four or five years, it's going to really be great. So then there's this really high incentive yeah. to say, you see how this is such a, this is terrible. I, I'll pull us out of this. It was fine before. All right. Is that, I mean, is is it possible? Is it, can we do it? Also, we have um, this complication of the price. The prices are so, the pricing of everything in the health. It's so space. distorted. It's completely distorted. Uh, you know, start. I mean, there are there are things that we can do. Like, if we simply allowed private contracting in Medicare, so that someone with which is not allowed now by Medicare, you have to charge every Medicare patient the same fee. And by the way, you can't give them a break on the copay because. Oh yeah, you can go to prison for that. Yeah, no, you can't. But there are patients who would love to pay more to have, let's say, you know, a, a concierge type of situation. They can't do that if they have Medicare. Right. And Medicare right. providers right. can't do that. Even something as simple as that would be empowering. The best ideas that you'll find are from John Goodman at, at the Goodman Institute. And I sit on John's board. And he's got lots of ideas that uh, would occupy a, a very comfortable transition uh, sort of, uh, you know, a, a ground that empowers patients in markets that are uh, more robust, you know, that that allow them to use their market power uh, to make uh, the health care they get through their insurance, uh, whether it's, you know, heavily government influence, with much, which, with, which most of it is or not, better. So I commend the Goodman Institute to to everyone, and there and John Goodman's very easy to read. Um, so he definitely makes great cases for that. But here's what concerns me, Ron. And when I was in Congress, what the the the, the uh, biggest lesson I took away from it? There were many lessons, as you might imagine, but the biggest one is guess what? You know, we can shake our fists at those idiots in Washington all we want. Most of those idiots are doing what their constituents want or expect them to do. So it's really, I mean, so, and by the way, so this, is, this is the I, fundamental question. Of, of, well, exactly. You know, I mean, my Republican colleagues, for the most part, were really solid people. And many of them had been in small business. You know, they really did understand market economics far better than the Democrats. And that includes, you know, the, the Democrats have a sort of bimodal distribution. They've got like the doctorate holders, you know, the academic, again, the academic types, you know, who live in their ivory tower. And I don't know why we thought, well, green energy everywhere just makes sense. Let's do it now. You know, and then they have, you know, folks who, you know, may think that Guam is floating on the ocean like a meringue. But uh, it's, it's, there are really some remarkably, remarkably are, stupid people. There are. The and Democratic you know what? In both I don't blame those those folks who are uneducated. I do blame all the public sector bureaucracies, especially since the so-called Great Society programs that consigned uh, especially urban communities to uh, disorder to lack of education, to lack of opportunity, uh, you know, and, and if Democrats really wanted to change the prospects for folks, 
they would start with the teachers unions. They would start with the public education bureaucracy and they can't go there because the teachers unions are their number one extortion division. But all the rest of it is just BS. So, and it, it goes, goes to my point about, you know, how do we change government? We can't change the government unless we change our electorate, unless we have a, a culturally, and when I say culturally, I mean historically, you know, civics uh, apprehending, you know, founding values apprehending, uh, basic economics, not modern monetary theory, but real economics like Henry Hazlitt, Austrian school economics. Uh, if we if we have an electorate that can understand those things and understand the beauty and brilliance, the, the liberating humaneness of our constitution, even like Elena Kagan seems not to understand that, sadly. Uh, and Sonia Sotomayor, another Princetonian, ah, but you understand, you know, if we had an electorate that apprehended those things, and you know who does among all of our uh, American citizens, Ron, I would submit to you, are naturalized Americans. Naturalized Americans who entered this country legally know the most about our constitution, value it the most because they know what the alternatives are. And Americans have been, they, they, they failed to understand how we became prosperous, how we became strong. Okay, but my, okay, so, but my mom is one of those people. Yes. And, she, and she's now living in Florida with all the other Yentas, okay? <laughs> and she watches The View. And her brain and and whatever natural intelligence she has, she, so she watches this all day long. And How could she watch head, the view, Ron? She is, uh, you know, this is. The, believe me, it's not just. Oh. It's not just my mom. It's all the moms, and this oh. is, and you know, yeah, right, right. Ah. So let me just that show you, that show will make you stupid. No, it will absolutely make you stupid. Ah. It, it absolutely make you stupid. But these are the these are this is the, our problem with our electorate. Yes. And look, you and I have you know been on this sort of love fest of the the old Princeton experience. Old for us, neither one of us would have been at Princeton a generation earlier. But um. nonetheless there was this real sense of excellence and yes. of not of elitism, of course there was also elitism, but of an elite experience. Absolutely. On the other hand, the vast majority of people aren't eligible for that. They couldn't benefit from right. that if you gave them the opportunity. Right. And it's, it's a fundamental question on democracy because we should have been getting smarter. The people, the, the yeah. demos should have been getting smarter. It's getting dumber. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. And it's because our teacher core, I mean, and, and frankly, I would have to say that the, the unfortunately, the, the least sensible people in this country at the moment are the products of the Ivy Leagues. So what I'm talking about in terms of understanding civics, the values of our founding, economics, all those things, they're not esoteric and you don't need a university and god knows you, you're better off without a university no in fact so, i always said that everyone who people that you've heard me say this a million times because you've yeah. just revealed that you actually listen to this stuff yeah donald trump reflected common sense exactly not withstanding the fact that his father was wealthy his father was blue collar wealthy owning okay. owning red brick apartment buildings in Brooklyn is not, you know, for the matter born to use your earlier, your earlier statement. Yeah, right, it's, right. 
it's work. It's it's working your way up. And D Donald Trump, yeah. to, to a large extent, a, a lot of his extravagant way of life is exactly what you'd ex expect right. of a nouveau riche. Yes. But the point is, yes. <laughs> his his which 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 if anything, Princeton teaches you how not to behave. If there's one thing that Princeton teaches you, it's how not to ever if you ever do come into money, never look like that. Tell but me about it. Yeah. <laughs> he he his. His point of view on policies was, well, what would a regular person, what would a guy from Queens right. Right. think? Absolutely. And that's well, what he was, and, and yes. that's what I am. <laughs> exactly right. He, President Trump was saying what every sensible person was thinking. You know, and, and therefore when, they and, had to turn him into a monster. The only, they could not oh, oppose absolutely. him with ideas. They no. opposed him by calling him a... A racist. We lived in. We grew up. You didn't grow up in the New York area, but you lived in, in the New York area for most of your life. Yes. You never heard him referred to as a. It was unheard. It was. He no. wouldn't have been, how would he? Could he have been so in public? It would have been involved in public life, getting a TV show. Unheard of, impossible. He right. was worse than Hitler every single day. Yeah. Uh, but we're on well-trod ground. Nan, fantastic yes. talking to you. We had much more fun than really humans should be allowed, but. <laughs> We are Princetonians, and we are we are entitled to specialness. Um, mm. it, you know, I just heard well, I just heard Amy Wax, Professor Amy Wax, yes, yes, talking about how, you know, as you were the, the Ivy, the products of the Ivy League, live the most bourgeois, upper middle middle class oh, and higher true. lifestyles. But God forbid someone insists that that's a model, that marriage and traditional families. And all those old-fashioned things are models for, you know, for success in life. Uh, and you know, it's but a cultural disaster. It, it, Ron, we have. I, I think often. I think it was John Adams. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase Adams, but who who said that uh, that the, a nation uh, designed as ours was only survives only if the citizens have within themselves the the constitution and i when i say that i don't mean i mean yes our constitution but but the moral constitution that integrity and i i, I just i loved your conversation with chris rufo but Thank when you. you talked about how children have to have a place to land they have to have a normative experience that is that is provided, yes, with compassion and love, and and you know to the extent that we can uh, have tolerance uh, for different points of view as long as they're not poisonously wrong. Like let's say drag queen story hour, I think is just poisonously wrong. I wouldn't have regular beauty queen story hour either. I think that sexualizes kids too. But, you know, right, all of those things are possible. But the left, there was, and I don't remember now who wrote it, but, you know, when we talk about queer, and again, if you're an adult, you have a, a right to live your life as queerly as you like. But they are deliberately queering the experience of children because they want to disrupt this society. Now, we have many participants in this. And again, our teacher core has been occupied for decades. Unfortunately, I was blessed to have amazing teachers, uh, marvelous teachers when I was in Munster, Indiana Public Schools. But the teacher core, the quality has been significantly diminished. And now I would say it's like actively being corrupted 
but you know, and wittingly or unwittingly, these people are, are, are poisoning kids. They're destroying the moral fiber, the backbone, everything that kids should have and deserve in their background. And if you don't have that, then the adult will never form. And adults need in a to take their responsibility. Parents need to remember it's their job to raise their kids, not the school systems. Right. We're going to have to do this again. Thank you so much. Privilege. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.